the place I went when I was a teenager after I'd been saved twice a week besides church was called the Suncoast Youth Ranch in those days. And nearly every meeting that the director of the Suncoast Youth Ranch ended the meeting, nearly every meeting when he gave an invitation, he ended with Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, and did this illustration that you may have seen before, I don't know, but he'd say, this hand represents you and me, my wallet represents sin, and this hand, we'll say, represents God. I could always remember which hand I wanted to represent God after, I, uh, after 1983, because it had a wedding ring on it, so that's the good hand. I know in some parts of the world it's not, but that's why I use that. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 it's probably on page 1233 or so in your Bible, says this. It says, He made him to be sin for us. He made him, the one who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, we being the ones who believe in him. The verses just before say that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. This sin is a barrier between us and God, but reconciliation is where that which is in between is taken out of the way, and so there's nothing between the Savior and those who believe in him anymore. Reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. They're not on me anymore. I'm the sinner, but he's not charging me with my sin anymore. And then it says he's committed unto us who believe this word of reconciliation. We talk about it. It's in our mouths. It's in our writings, I hope. We are ambassadors for Christ. We're the ones representing him. He's not here talking this morning. Sadly, I am, but I'd love you to hear Jesus' words. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you, in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. And those who believe that Jesus died for them when he died on the cross, they have become in Christ. And in Christ, on the books of God in heaven, we are made the very righteousness of God in him. That, my friend, is why I love Second Corinthians 5.21. I heard it so very many times when I was a teenager. And I think it's a great way to share the gospel and the wallet illustration. Back in chapter 5, verse 5, we'll begin our lesson today. Let's, I don't think we prayed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we open our class this morning, we pray that you would be the teacher and get, get my ramblings and reminiscences out of the way and let your word speak clearly to us. Help us to understand the lesson that you have prepared through my feeble efforts. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 5 says, Now he that hath wrought us for this selfsame thing is God, who's given, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Now what is that talking about? He had just talked about being out of this old body and in a house not made with hands, not by man, in heaven. And this verse, verse 5, says he that has done it, he that has wrought us for this selfsame thing, to have this eternal home in the heavens, is God. He's gotten for us, God has gotten for us, a home in heaven. 
a, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, the verses before said. And he's also given us the earnest of the Spirit. Now my notes say that what he wrought for us is less the house in heaven and more this desire to escape. This desire to escape this old body, which is a true thing too. In this old body, verse 2 says, we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. That desire, that desire might be what verse 5 is referring to. He that wrought us for the selfsame thing is God. And he's given us the earnest of the Spirit. Now, that's a, it's almost an aside, but it's a really important marginal note, if you will, in, in God's word here in chapter 5. When you believe in Jesus, God has given us the earnest of the Spirit. If you have ever purchased real estate, you're familiar a little bit with the term earnest. Real estate, when it's listed professionally, is listed with terms that the seller is willing to accept. The price and other terms might be there as well. A buyer, seeing the offer, might say, I'd like to buy that, and I don't want him to sell it to somebody else, so I want him to stop trying to sell it. And in order to get the offer off of the marketplace and reserved to the buyer that wants to buy it, the buyer says, this is my offer to you, and he may have slightly different terms, or he may be exactly the same, and he says, so that you know I'm serious, this amount of money, and it some people used to get away with $500. I think it takes significantly more than that now to show that you are in earnest because for $500 you can just about get two tanks of gas. But um, earnest money, you hand over money, whether it's this form or that form, you hand it over to a third party usually, not directly to the seller, and it's money. It's not a down payment. That's something you do when you buy something on layaway. But earnest money is to show that you are in earnest, that you're serious and you're going to carry through to the end if the person accepts your offer. And if he says, yes, I accept it, you have now a contract. And when you have a contract, if you that made the terms and he accepted your terms, if you back out of it, he gets, he gets the money that you put down in earnest. That's what an earnest deposit is. It's something the buyer offers made to the seller, though the seller doesn't get it unless the buyer backs out. If the buyer goes through with the deal, then he pays the rest of the money through some mortgage company or another, and then the earnest money just became part of it like it was a down payment. But the point of it is not a down payment. The point of it is to show that the giver of the offer that you're accepting, to show them that you're in earnest and they don't want, you don't want them to sell it to somebody else. That's what earnest money is for. And God has given us the earnest of the Spirit in the sense that right now we have God's Holy Spirit. If you're a believer, he lives in you. I think we'll look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul has written this to the... Oops, I missed it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is page 1217 if you're using a Schofield Bible. And if, I can, if you'll excuse me, I think Paul's yelling at them here in his letter, but... What know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost 
God's Holy Spirit. Your body is his temple, which is in you. Where's the Holy Spirit? In the believer, in every believer, which you have of God. You possess him presently, and you don't belong to yourself. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Well, that's, that's a great privilege and a great thing to be aware of. Your body is the place where God lives. He was represented on earth during Jesus' lifetime by being on earth himself. Jesus was God himself on the earth, but Jesus went back to heaven, and when he did, a few days later, he sent God's Holy Spirit to live inside every believer. The day of Pentecost, we call that, when the believers were indwelt by God's Holy Spirit. God himself lives in every believer. You say, well, I know some believers don't act very much like God lives in them. Yeah, you can, you can hurt his feelings. You can do badly with the Holy Spirit that's in you. But Paul yells at you if you do. Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own. This is not in the notes, but just for a moment I'm going to switch back to chapter 3. Uh, in verse 17 it says, If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God, what is it? Destroy. Well, wait a minute. What's the temple of God? I am. The temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Do you want God to, <laughs> it's a strong word, destroy you? That, I think, should get your attention. And then he says the same thing again chapter 6. He says, your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God. You have him, and you're not your own. Some of you may have heard this story. I tell it now and again. But in the days of the Old West, the late 19th century, there was a fellow riding on a train out west, and he had his coat across his lap, so he was uh, sitting there just minding his own business, and a couple others came up to him and said, Sir, would you join us back here? We need another person to play in our game of cards. And this is after the Civil War, and, and uh, he looked at him and he said, Gentlemen, I'm sorry, I don't have any hands. And they said, oh my, I'm so sorry, sir, I didn't understand you. That was a bad war. And they, they left him alone. Well, a, a little while later, the food cart came through, and they sold some food, and he got himself a sandwich and something else. And he's sitting there eating away, and, and they look, hey, mister, I thought you said you didn't have any hands. And he said, what, these? These aren't mine. These belong to Jesus Christ. And they said, oh, <laughs> and went on with life. He had the right idea. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and you don't belong to yourself. Dr. Seymour used to tell it this way. He said when he was a kid, there would be a preacher that would say, don't think you can go. He didn't like movie theaters, I think. Don't think you can go to the picture show and take Jesus with you because he won't go. And that's not true. Whatever worldly, messed up, wrong-headed entertainment you decide to involve yourself with, God the Holy Spirit is dragged along with you. What are you exposing God? If any man defile the temple of God, him God will destroy. Mind your manners. <laughs> He's our present possession. He's our indwelling guest. He's the seal of our security. What is a seal? Again, with the real estate contracts, 
we, we use this idea of seal. When, when you sign a, some cer- certain kinds of legal documents, you'll see on a form already printed in there, in parentheses, the word seal right next to or underneath the line where you're supposed to sign your name. And a seal, your signature over the word seal, has more, understand, whether you understand it, has more weight in court. Because you're not just saying, that's me. You're saying, that's me. And I've, like in the old days where they actually had a physical seal and they'd put wax on it, stamp it in place, and there's your seal proving that you're you. Now we use a notary public that looks at her little at your driver license, and, and she puts her stamp on it and says, it, you're sure you're you. He is the seal. After you believed, Ephesians 1.13 says, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. God gave you promise, the promise of salvation. You believed God put his seal on you, saying, I'm really doing this promising, and you really get it because you're mine now. And the Holy Spirit himself is the seal. It shows our security and it shows our ownership. God put his seal on us to say they're mine. The Romans put a seal on the tomb of Jesus to say, we got him, he's ours. They were sadly mis- they were mistaken, not sadly. They were gloriously mistaken because he left without benefit of uh, undoing the door. The angel undid the door, not so Jesus could get out, but so that the uh, visitors could get in and see he was gone. Verse 30 of chapter 4 of Ephesians, this is over on page 1254, says, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. Don't do it. You are sealed by him, whereby you are sealed until the day of redemption. What do you mean? When God fully gives you all that is with salvation, not just the earnest anymore, but when we go to be with the Lord, when he comes back and and takes us to him, when he sets up his kingdom, when we live and reign with him a thousand years, all of those times, the redemption of the whole world worked by the Son of God when he died on the cross for sin. He's coming back. The promise to King David was not that he would have a son that would be the glorious Savior as much as he's going to rule over the house of Israel forever. And Jesus is coming back, and that's the day of redemption, and that's how long we're going to have just the earnest of this salvation. It's a wonderful thing. We're sealed. The same Holy Spirit does another thing for us. In in chapter 5 of Ephesians, we're right next to that. In chapter 5 and verse 18, it says... Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. I have no experience in this myself. I'm not proud about that. I'm just really, really relieved. I have never had alcohol in me that I'm aware of. Maybe a maraschino cherry, but not on purpose. And what I have heard is that being the container for too much alcohol takes you out of control of yourself. And that is used as the illustration of don't be that, but be filled with, be controlled by God's Holy Spirit. He lives in you. He's marked you as God's own. He's secured you. You can't break his seal. But he also will, if you allow it, you will, if you allow it, he will control you. 
When you are controlled by the Holy Spirit, that's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. How do you know how to be controlled by the Holy Spirit? You know, God wrote a book, book full of instructions. When you do what the book says, you can say, hey, God is in control because I'm going to do it this way, this way. And you do what the book says, you're in, I can say, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. You say, well, I'm going to do this much of it this way, but then I'm going to go over here and do this part my way. Well, you're not in control of the Holy Spirit then. Somebody comes into the pastor's office and says, God is leading me to divorce my wife and marry this young thing. Possibly he's mistaken, because the Bible's pretty plain about not divorcing for little trivial causes and about marrying the sweet young thing. That's just wrong. It's just wrong. That's not the filled with the Spirit. God is not leading you that way. Yeah. Poor illustration. What else does this Holy Spirit do for us? In 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, page 1323, if you're keeping up turning the pages, 1 John 2, 20, he says, you, John writes, you have an unction from the Holy One. Now, I know you've all gone out and bought your unction this morning because you buy unction every Sunday. No, what's an unction? An unction's an old-fashioned word for anointing. Well, that's another old-fashioned word. What's an anointing? That's where you rub something on you. <laughs> I occasionally use a triple antibiotic when I have little discrepancies from working in the yard or whatever to keep it from being infected. That's an unction. That's an anointing when I put that on my skin. That's what anointing or unction is. And this says you have an unction, you have an anointing from the Holy One, the Holy Spirit, and you know all things. What? God lives in you, and he'll teach you. In the same chapter, in verse 27, he says, the anointing, that's that unction word, which you have received of him, abides in you. Well, we already knew that from Paul. He lives in us. He's our Holy Spirit guest. You have received him. He lives in you, and you need not that any man teach you. So you're all dismissed. No, that's that's not what comes next in the outline. The same anointing, The Holy Spirit of God in you teaches you of all things and is truth and is no lie. And even as it has taught you, you shall abide in him. Now, when John wrote this, I'm going to say some deep truth here. John was still alive. (laughs) I'd write that down, Tony. But he was very old. The rest of the apostles were gone. The people who had heard and could repeat what Jesus said were gone. God had been using miraculous gifts to let some of the men write the New Testament. But John is the last one, and he's nearly done. And they're going to stop going to people to teach them the will of God, and they're going to go to the book. They're going to go to the book, and the Holy Spirit will make known the book of God to them. He'll be the teacher When Jesus was about to leave the disciples, he did say he was going to send another, another one like him, another comforter, another advocate, another paraclete, and he would lead them into all truth and bring to their remembrance everything he'd ever said to them. There's the Gospels, everything he'd said to them. And lead them into all truth. I think that's the rest of the New Testament except for the book of Revelation. And then show them things to come, and there's the rest of the New Testament. 
He promised it, and the Holy Spirit had built the book using these men. And they wouldn't need men to teach as though God were teaching them anymore. Do you get that? Before this, Paul, John, Peter would stand up and say, Thus saith the Lord, and it would be what God had for them. Not, they weren't always speaking as the prophets of the Lord, but they were sometimes. God gave them miraculous signs so that when they went to places that did not know the word of God, non-Jewish places, they would have a better chance of persuading people that the words that they spoke were indeed the words of God. Paul, writing back to the Thessalonians, complimented them about this. They said, you, when you received my words, you received it not as the word of man, but as it is in truth, the very word of God. Paul mentioned that as a good thing that the Thessalonian pagans had done. They were Greeks. They weren't Jewish. They didn't know a thing about the words of Moses. They did have a synagogue, but they didn't know as much as the Jews did. So, the Holy Spirit is our present possession, our indwelling guest, our seal of security and ownership, our empowerer, if we'll let him, our teacher, and so much more. Let's go on now to verse 6 of chapter 2. I didn't hit the right button. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, sorry, verse 6. 2 Corinthians 5, 6. He starts with a word that you pay attention to. Therefore, which refers to what has come before and says that's the ground on which we can say this next thing. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. What kinds of assurance words do you see there? We're always confident, knowing How strong is that? We have a no-so salvation. Verse 7 says we walk by faith, not by sight. There's stuff we don't see, yet we know it's true. We're always confident. Back in verse 1 of the same chapter, we read, we know and we have. Paul's been talking about no-so salvation. And in verse 6, he says, while we are at home in the body, while I live here, I'm not there. Is very deep truths, you know. If I'm not, if I'm in this body, I'm not in heaven yet. That's plain. If we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord, and we walk by faith, not by sight. Paul says we are confident, he repeats the assurance word and says, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. I want to get out of here, he says. I want the Lord to come back and get me with him. We're absent from the body. We're present with the Lord. While we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. When the teacher calls the roll, if you're not there, you don't say absent. (laughs) The other kids say, he's not here. But when you go to be with the Lord, if he calls the roll, you can say present. Present with the Lord. Present with the Lord. There's a a section of my notes now that I want to go to that you might not think of as coming right to mind. But verse 7 brought this to mind for me. We walk by faith, not by sight. Things that we don't see guide our footsteps. 
We're not looking at the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path. That's not what that's about here. We do that with the Bible. But this path through life, Paul says, it's done with the view of eternal things rather than the next expedient material thing. We walk by faith, not by sight. I would point out before I leave the page, at the end of verse 7, there's a smiley face, just for those of you that like to use smiley faces. But what did this bring to mind for me? It brought to mind Hebrews chapter 11. And this is page 1301 and 1302 and thereabouts in your Schofield Bible. And I want to go there and, and spend a bit of time there. Probably you have to finish up here or maybe not finish. But Hebrews chapter 11, it's, oh, that's the Faith Hall of Fame and we know all about that. I hope you do. But the point of Hebrews chapter 11 is mentioned in verse 1 things not seen, things hoped for. All of the men and women mentioned or alluded to in Hebrews chapter 11 walked the way they walked, did the mighty things that they did, or put up with the awful things that they did, because in spite of not being able to see a good outcome, heard and understood a promise of God. By faith, the elders obtained the, a good report. Verse 3 takes us back to before there was anybody to see, before Adam. Through faith we understand the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen are not made of things which do appear. God made us and everything out of nothing. The things which are seen, what we've gotten out, were not made of things which do appear. It didn't just come out of a big bang. It didn't just all come out of a huge mass of matter in one little spot. It didn't happen that way. The things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Through faith we understand that, and we couldn't see it. Adam didn't get to see it. You know that, right? Adam was not there when God said, let there be light. He didn't. Moses certainly wasn't there. They didn't write down what they observed. They wrote down, Moses did at least, what God told them. Maybe Adam did too, I don't know. And it goes on beyond the creation in verse 4. Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain because it was by faith. And when he did that, he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. And by it, he being dead yet speaketh. What did Abel offer? What did Abel offer? A lamb, right? Because he'd read Exodus and he knew that the lamb was the pass. No, not because he'd read Exodus, but because his father or God himself had taught him. We had to have this, the death of an innocent substitute to cover our nakedness because of our sin. I think Adam explained God's gift of coats of skins to his family. I think Adam understood it better than you'd imagine if you just read the text because he taught sacrifice to Abel and said, Abel, don't give him your good works. Offer by faith what God has provided you without work. And he obtained witness that he was righteous because God said that. He got it right, Adam. And Abel's testimony still teaches salvation by grace through faith today. Cain, not so much. 
We go on to verse 5. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death. He wasn't found because God translated him. Before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. He that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of him that diligently seek him. And back in the account in Genesis, Enoch is just said of him that he walked with God. He walked with God. And here in Hebrews, it says he pleased God. Enoch got close with God, and God said, that's good. He didn't know more than anybody else did, but God said, Let's, you just come on here. I, I want you home with me in heaven right now. And just by faith. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet. Noah, I think he'd seen rain. I really do. But he'd never seen a worldwide judgment on sin like was about to come on the whole world. <clears throat> Moved with fear because God says, I'm going to kill everybody. To Noah, he said it. And that caused him to be very attentive and respectful. Prepared an ark to the saving of his house. That bad Noah, he condemned the world that way. Well, only because nobody else got in the boat. They all died in the flood. And Noah became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. Because he believed God, he passed on that message. There's, there's something coming you haven't seen yet. There's a judgment coming. You need to believe God and do what he says to get out of the judgment. In Noah's case, it was build a boat. It says in the other parts of the Bible that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And I think he explained the gospel for 120 years while the ark was building. And I think a lot of people probably understood the message and got saved and didn't get on the boat. There's believers who died in the flood because Noah, being a preacher of God's righteousness by faith, would have had some besides his family. But they were not close to God. They were disobedient in the time that the ark was building and they they went to the place of the dead someday to be reunited with god but at that time just off in the place of the dead verse 8 says by faith abraham did several things by faith he didn't know where he was going not knowing where he went but he obeyed he went out Verse 9 says, by faith he sojourned, he had his camp meeting in the land of promise. And there's the word that helps us understand faith. There's a promise here for Abraham, but it's as though you're in a foreign country. And the word strange means it doesn't belong to you, it's alien. When it says Solomon married many strange wives, it doesn't mean they were unusually deformed, it means they didn't belong to him. They were from Egypt, or they were from the other pagan countries around. They did, weren't, weren't God's people. By faith, Abraham temporarily camped, sojourned in the land of promise. God promised he going to give it to him, but for him then it was like uh, somebody not American citizen coming up and camping in America. Just, But he lived in, he didn't build houses, he lived in tents. And so did Isaac, and so did Jacob. They were promised that land as their own, but they didn't build houses and cities. Verse 10 says, He looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. The whole time that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were in the land during their lifetime, 
they were there because God had made a promise of a city that would be permanent for them. Through faith, Sarah received strength to conceive seed, was delivered of a child when she was past age, and she could do that because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there of even of one, and him as good as dead, that's Abraham, as good as dead. Romans says that same thing, not considering the deadness of Sarah's womb or his own body was able to perform. Him as good as dead, as many as the stars of the sky in multitude sprang from Abraham and Sarah, as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. And then it goes back and summarizes, these all died in faith, not having received the promises. They've seen them afar off. Now, we just made the point, they're not seeing the end of the promise. They're seeing the promise. God says, I'll give you something. Here's my promise. I'm going to give you something. Take it by faith. And they lived their lives as aliens, as strangers, in tents, because they're waiting for God to do his thing, because he's promised to give them a city that has foundations. They saw them in his word, in his promise, afar off. They were persuaded of them. That's a wonderful word, persuaded. That's what happens when you hear the gospel message and it makes sense to you and you say, I believe. You're persuaded and you embrace and confess, this world is not my home. There are strangers and pilgrims on the earth. I'm going to heaven. I'd rather not go right this instant. God's got a job for me to do. I'd really rather go this instant, Paul said. <laughs> but uh, they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. The, my treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. There was an old rabbi in Europe that uh, was well known for his wisdom, and people would come to his little place and visit with him. And a man came to the door, and he let him in, and he looked around, and the man had nothing but a stool and a single table and books. And he said, Rabbi, where's your furniture? And the visitor looked at him and said, or rather, the rabbi looked at the visitor and said, where's yours? Where's mine? Mine is at my home. This is not my home. This is your home. He said, no, mine's at my home, too. <laughs> This world is not my home. They that say such things plainly declare that they seek a country. If they'd been mindful of that country where they came out from, back over there in Ur of the Chaldees, they could have gone back. You want to turn back now? You can do it. But now they desire a better country, a heavenly country. And because that truth explains their faith. They believed God's promise. God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared for them this heavenly country, this city that has foundations. And that goes back into the list, and I'm not going to go away from it yet because it's just so good. By faith, Abram, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. He that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. What? God said, you're going to have all these children as the stars in the sky, as the sand in the seashore, through Isaac. I'll take care of Ishmael as well, but it's through Isaac. And he said, now Abraham, get up and take Isaac and kill him and offer him as a burnt sacrifice. And Abraham says, here I go. No hesitation. He says, here I go. 
By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. He that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom Isaac it was said, that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Verse 19, here's Abraham's faith, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. I'll kill him. You bring him back up. I know you will. I'm not even asking. And from whence also he received him in a figure. You know he had the boy laid out on the wood on the altar. He had the fire ready to light it up, and he had the knife in his hand when the angel stopped him. And Abraham, and he said, yes, sir, here. (laughs) He said, don't do that. Get that ram out of the bush. Sacrifice the substitute. And so he, who had given up Isaac, three days earlier he'd given him up. As soon as God said, go and offer him, he says, well, that's as good as dead. But he received him back from the dead in a figure, it says. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshiped leaning on the top of his staff, looking into the future and saying, these are things God's going to do for you, my my children. By faith, Joseph, when he died, where are they when Joseph dies? When Joseph dies, where is the family of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? In Egypt. And when Joseph died, he says, this world, especially this world, is not where I want to be buried. He made mention of the departing of the children of Israel. He said, you guys are going to get out of here. Take me with you. Take my bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months by his parents. Not Moses' faith, I don't think. Their faith. They saw he was a proper child. They were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He was in the Pharaoh's household, raised as a prince. And he says, I'd rather suffer affliction with the people of God than enjoy the pleasures of sin. A season. The reproach of Christ is greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. He had respect under the recompense of the reward. He didn't have reward. He had a miserable 40 years in the desert and died without going into the promised land. But he did go into the promised land. Did Moses make it into the promised land? Do we ever see Moses in the promised land? He and uh, Elijah standing there on the Mount of Transfiguration in front of Peter and James and John and with Jesus talking about Jesus is going to go die for sin. We knew it and we're about ready to see it happen. (sighs) Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ. I'll uh, stay with the people of God. Greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, he had respect under the recompense of the reward. You don't give up anything when you choose to serve the Lord. Great gain. He forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. You know, the first time he left Egypt was because he feared the wrath of the king. But when he left with the children of Israel, he was not afraid. Pharaoh said, I'm going to kill you if I see you again. And Moses said, you're right, you won't see me again. And he took the children out and they spoiled the Egyptians. They took their treasures with them so they'd have nice earrings to make the golden calf with. You know, that was their thought about God's plan. I don't know. Not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, 
God said, Moses, you know, I've been doing great things, but I want to tell you about one more thing, and you better pay attention. Moses said, well, you know, I've seen all this other stuff, but how am I supposed to think you're going to destroy the firstborn of every household? You can't do that. I mean, how are you going to separate the firstborn from the secondborn? How are you going to know the children? God says, put blood, kill a lamb for a household, blood on the doorposts, on the lintel. The angel of death will come through, the destroyer will come through, and he'll kill every firstborn that's not in a house that's marked with the blood. Through faith. Would that make sense? Jesse gets up and preaches up here, and he says, we got a word from God, and you got to go home and and kill a dog and put blood on each side of your garage door and stay in the house. No, that wouldn't make sense. And it was, that, it was that strange for Moses. You know it was, except he'd been with God and knew when God was telling him the truth. But he's just believing the promise. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. Through faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land. This is the only part of this that we really know how it happened. Charlton Heston stood there with the rod of God and held it out over the sea, and the sea rolled back, and we know exactly what that looked like because we've seen it in the show, maybe. Um, It does follow pretty close to what the Bible says happened. So they're standing by the Red Sea, is what the text says, not the marsh where there's two foot of water, but a sea... And they go across it, and the only problem they had was dust in their eyes, because it was as by dry land. And the Egyptians coming after them drowned in two feet of water? I don't think so. They, I keep mentioning that, because that's what the liberals say. But uh, by faith, the walls of Jericho. We've gone past Moses on to Joshua now. The walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. And by faith... The harlot Rahab perished not with them which believed not. What does that tell you about her? She believed, don't you think, by faith? And the other ones that perished didn't believe? What, what was her thing? Well, she did good works. No, she believed God. She said, I've heard about what you did in Egypt, your God, what he did down there in Egypt. We've heard about it. Keep, keep me alive. <laughs> you wonder, she's, she's a harlot. She's not a good woman. She's in the line of Christ. What shall I more say? Time would fail me, and it's going to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. That's all through faith, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others had a trial of cruel mockings and scourgings and of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. The tradition tells us that's how the prophet Isaiah died. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. Skipping the first phrase there. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth, of whom the world was not worthy. These all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. They just got the promise and not the end of it. They didn't get the actuality. God, having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Their promises would not be completed. What a wonderful 
way to understand faith. God promises things based on what we don't see. And we believe him, and he says, that's what I want. Believe me when I say, for by grace are you saved through faith, and it not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. What Jesus said to one of Lazarus' sisters there, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live, and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die, believest thou this? And she said, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, should come into the world. Faith is just believing. The song says what God said he'll do. He will never leave us. His promises are true. If you will but trust him, his children you become. Faith is just believing. This wondrous thing is done. Will you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, thank you for your word in this marvelous chapter that exemplifies for us all the, the faith of these men and women who did not see the evidence of what they were relying on, but just said, God said it. That settles it. And believed God. We, when we believe the promise of Jesus, whose death on the cross provided our salvation, when we believe it, we are in him, covered with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he took our sins. He took our sins, reconciled the world unto himself, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Help each of us be bold as we share this message outside these walls. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm sorry I'm a little long. It's getting to be a bad habit. Glad you were here. Yeah, I get I get bigger.